Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Tonight we come to a new book, but not necessarily a new story. Uh, First and Second Samuel really seeks to be able to answer the question that uh, arises at the end of the book of Judges that this cycle of uh, Judges comes to and this refrain that gets repeated several times, chapter 17 and again in verse uh, chapter 21, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you see this problem of a king, uh, the lack of a king in the nation of Israel, uh, but not only that, they didn't have a king, but everyone was a king. Everyone was their own king to themselves. They did what is right in their own eyes, which is, uh, as we know, not submitting to uh, God as king as he has presented the law. And First and Second Samuel seeks to really to be able to answer this problem that arises that there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And they get a king in Saul. Uh, but he does what is right in his own eyes, not uh, what is right in God's own eyes. And uh, he eventually, the kingdom is taken from his hands as uh, he grabs uh, the, the, the bottom of the cloak of uh, Samuel. Um, but then they find a king. They find a king who is a godly man who does not do what is right in his own eyes. He does several times, but... We find out that he repents, turns back, and he finds himself underneath God and and his reign. But uh, one of the promises then that comes from this godly king of King David is that one of his sons would sit on his throne forever. There's a promise God makes in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And before we get to the passage we're going to look at tonight, just four verses, um, I want to do a brief introduction to the book of Kings. And and I like to be able to do this, to be able to uh, reorient ourselves. I even was thinking about doing a summary of Second Samuel. Where have we been? How, how did we get here? Kind of basically an introduction looking back on it. Uh, that, that's helpful for you, hopefully, but then also helpful for me as I look back. But we find our story continues as we'll keep on seeing. But I thought we'd do a brief introduction tonight of the book of 1 Kings. And normally I try and take about a whole lesson to be able to unpack some of these ideas and and try and see where we're going, what are the themes that we're going to be looking out for. Um, But I think that as we come to this, we'll find that, like I said, we we turn to a new, uh, new book, but not necessarily a new story. That we find ourselves continuing in the story that we've been looking at for such a long time in First and Second Samuel. But as I begin a new book, I do like to be able to help us to try and fit ourselves into the context. And I find that to be able to do that, I like to answer four questions that revolve around uh, the A's. You know, the author who is the who wrote this book, uh, the audience uh, to who whom did he write this book? Um, you know, I think that's a very interesting uh, point to be able to raise. The aspiration, why is this book written? And then the application, so what? What does this matter in all of this and information? And those type of questions help us sometimes as we get into difficult passages or we get stuck sometimes what is called in the weeds of the book that we are reminded again of these, these big things. So we'll begin to first ask the question, the author... Now, again, this is, can be a very helpful question to be able to ask, uh, particularly um, 
when you find yourselves in a New Testament epistle, this answer is generally quite very very clear. We find, you know, Hebrews is one of those passages that it's a little bit difficult for us to be able to answer this uh, question. Um, but it is still a helpful question, although we're not given that directly in the book of First uh, and Second Kings. Now, we need to understand, uh, before I go any further, that we separate these books into First and Second Kings, but really, they're all combined. Um, we have, uh, you, it's just called the Book of Kings, really. Um, First and Second Kings are combined, and eventually, uh, we divide them up, um, uh, but here we find ourselves uh, looking to begin with at First Kings. So, but we do find a problem when we come to uh, Old Testament narrative is that with a letter, it's quite simple. You know, you have who is it to, who is it from, written there right in the introduction. Uh, but that's hard in Old Testament narrative because it's not a, a letter. So then we need to be cautious about a model like this, although I think it's helpful to be able to look at author, audience, aspiration, application. It's helpful to be able to do that. Sometimes we don't know the exact answer. And we then don't try and fit our question uh, to try and find the answer that might not be there. So, in this case, we don't necessarily know the author who it is written by. Um, But even as we ask the question, who is the author? We're somewhat assuming that there is only one author who writes this whole book. And that becomes quite a big problem. Either that, uh, that one author is someone who lived uh, a space of several hundred years and was able to write this book, or this author then looks back and writes uh, a story back on this. Now, so even in our uh, limited understanding of this author audience situation, we do find some hurdles. And it just shows that there's limits. As we ask questions of the Bible, we need to not be trying to fit the Bible to make sure every question we ask is answered in the way that we assume it will be. Um, But here, let me try and explain my understanding of this. I pointed this out a couple of times in 1 and 2 Samuel, but I believe that uh, what we see here is, is a collection of writings written by uh, the prophets. The, the role of a prophet isn't someone who merely just speaks forth the word of God, but it is also someone who also records the word of God. You think even about um, our Old Testament, how it's compiled, and you look at uh, many of the authors, and they have a very specific role. Uh, say Moses. Moses is called a prophet. He's a leader, but he's also the one who records what happens to God's people and writes them down. You have this even in the minor prophets, major prophets. Majority of our books of the Bible are written by prophets in their role and office of what it is. And we find that in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, you could probably find that pattern where there's a prophet who has been recording these stories as they're going about, not merely just going up and preaching sermons of calling people to repent. Part of a, a prophet's message is to be able to write them down because then what happens if it comes true even if the first people don't hear the message and repent maybe people down the road might hear the message of those people who did not repent and then they might go and repent as well so they're the ones who recorded the events and i believe what you find is this uh collection of these prophets who have recorded 
the events that are happening underneath these kings and their reigns um, to be able to see what God is doing. Now, we saw this in 1 Samuel um, quite clearly when the author of 1 Chronicles explains that are they not, uh, they're written in the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, in Chronicles of Nathan the prophet, and in Chronicles of Gad the seer. So that's where I come who wrote the, the story of, um, who wrote First and Second Samuel? Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. Um, that's, where I, that's where I base it upon. And uh, over the period of time, sometimes we find ourselves, well, who's writing this portion? That's hard. And again, that's where that limit of who is the author of this book, we're assuming that there's one author instead of who might be the authors, and then trying to find out a pinpoint exactly where that happens. So most of the Old Testament we're given are written by Old Testament prophets, and that's a specific uh, duty of a prophet. So this principle being case, the prophets record the events, and then there is some form of editing that happens later on. Maybe editing of compiling these documents, as I think that the, the, we see clearly in the, the book of First Chronicles, as even they attribute and say, well, there's these other sources that we were able to go to. And we see that even in First Kings, that there's reference to not just the book itself, but outside of that. First Kings says uh, in chapter 16, the rest of the books of Basha and what he did and his might, are they not in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So here, it's referencing in the book of uh, Kings, Another book, Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Now, again, you get to which came first, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles. Is there another uh, extra source out there of what it is? Uh, First Chronicles referring to the books of Nathan, Gad, and uh, Samuel. But it's very common practice, particularly even during this time, that it's not only just what happens in the nation of Israel, it's also what happens in other nations as well. We see in the book of Esther that all the acts of his power and might and the full account of high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Media and Persia? So here, other countries outside also have historical accounts of their kings. And here the point in, in the book of Esther is Mordecai, um, uh, to which the king advanced him. Or also, he got mentioned in these other books as well. So here's where um, my theory really is based. In First and Second Samuel, it's based in that First Chronicles chapter 29. But also we see here in Second Chronicles chapter 13 that the rest of the acts of Abijah, his ways and his sayings, are written in the story of the prophet of Adu. So here you have a king's story recorded by prophet Adu. Now we don't have any other account of a prophet Adu in any of his writings. But here, there's another reference of this book. So we have a prophet recording the events and the actions of a king and his sayings to be able to then pass them on. So we see this practice, of not just in other countries, in the story in the nation of Israel. And in Second Samuel, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 24, accounts of his sons and his many oracles against him and of the rebuilding of the house of God are written in the story of the book of the kings. Um, so here you have in Second Chronicles this reference to the book of the kings. Now again, this could be the book of the kings of these first and second um, kings as we know it. Or it could be another source which is also labeled the book of kings. We're giving titles. They're referring to a book. 
they assume that you know the title of the book. But here you have uh, the accounts of his sons. So there's an account. There's oracles against him. What, what is an oracle against someone? Well, that's what a prophet does, right? They speak oracles against someone. So a prophet is, is writing this. So we see this uh, perspective of how we might get a, a book like the book of First and Second Kings. Take the principle that we see in First and Second Samuel, then apply it. And we also see traces and hints of how it is compiled there uh, in, in the book itself. So with this question in mind, then does have an having an editor coming in to be able to put these books together, is that then some form of violation of how we understand Scripture coming to be? Now, it depends on the scholars. Many liberal scholars will elevate the the place of an editor. And what they do is they say an editor takes stories, picks and chooses those stories, edits those stories to such a way that they twist it and distort it to come about their own biases, their shifts, their, their moves. And they, you, you see this clearly. Liberal scholars will do this in the book of Genesis. Well, he's my sister accounts. Well, they took this story that somewhat happened. They twist and distort it, and they edit it together, and they forgot that they already edited it into the story beforehand. So, but what they actually do is they elevate the person, the editor, and they say the editor thinks they have the right to be able to change and alter what they have been given to be able to twist and distort what they have. And, and, and then they say, well, we have a whole book, and it can't be written by the one author. There must be an editor who puts this together. So in the book of Genesis, there's a great example in the, book of Mo, the, the recordings of Mo, Moses in the first five books of the Pentateuch. They'll say that there's different editors that put it together. And, it, it, you know, quite the theory of how this comes together, but they read Genesis 1, and they... They read how Genesis 1 speaks of Elohim as God. And then later accounts, they speak of how Yahweh, the Lord, creates. And so they say, well, they've got different names that they call God. And then when they try to piece it together, they try and pinpoint who's who. And, you know, you can get down to redactors. Not only have editors, you have the editor who put the book together, but then you also have editors of the edits. So then you have people who are, you know, Deuteronomists, and they're the people that kind of focus on the law, and they edit it, and, you know, so you have redactors, you have redactor one, you know, Deuteronomist two, and uh, my uh, uh, Old Testament um, professor at seminary, he said he was reading some academic article, and here they are, and they're mentioning, you know, R2-D2, who's this droid on droid, you know, Star Wars, who's editing the Bible. But what they're doing is they're elevating the person of the editor and says this editor is the one who can pick and choose what he wants to be able to include. However, if we have a high view of Scripture, and we understand that God not only uses the man to be able to record and use the pen to be able to write, write Scripture as he carries along the prophets through the Holy Spirit. He also uses man to be able to preserve Scripture and hand it down. And there's a difference between an editor and a preserver. An editor will seek to you know, chop and change and pick and choose, but someone who seeks to be able to preserve merely just puts the stories together and preserves them in a way that they can be passed on. And I think there's a great big difference, and we might call them an editor puts them together, but what we're saying, we're not saying someone is picking and choosing. What they're doing is they're merely just 
mixing them, uh, connecting the stories, maybe you know, connecting some, writing a line here to be able to fill in a gap from how we get from A to B. So we, we see that even God uses the, the author to be able to write the scripture, but he also uses men to be able to preserve scripture as well. And that's not outside of our purview of how we understand God orchestrating and looking after, after scripture. It's not merely that God wrote scripture and just left it. God has written scripture and he preserves it for his people as well through his providence. And this is how God speaks, that he speaks through prophets, as the author of Hebrews says. Many times God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and we have that account in our Bibles. He spoke through prophets. And you might say that 1 Kings, although it's not a book of the prophets, you might say that it might be recorded by the office of a prophet, or, or, or by someone even maybe by a different uh, office, you might say, not necessarily a prophet. But that, that's my theory, that it's a prophet passed down. So who's the, uh, the prophet? Uh, who's the author of this? I think it changes. You know, you're going through First Kings chapter 17. And I think that's Elijah writing down these stories. And maybe Elisha takes on that role after Elijah is doing that. And so we have this uh, passing of the baton. So who's the author? Uh, I would say who's the authors? Well, we don't know specifically, but prophets, I would put in that thing. Then we come to the second point, the audience. Who then, who is, is uh, written? Now, of course, in all of these, there's simple answers, like who's the author? Well, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so then you can just merely move on. But you might need to be able to answer that question in a little bit different. So who's the audience? Well, the people of God are the audience. So then we could just move on from there. But at what point then would you say in history is the, pe- is the people of God given this book in its entirety? In what point in history is the people of God given this book in its entirety? When can someone start reading the book of Kings and finish the book of Second Kings in one sitting? That's kind of the question you're trying to ask. If you're asking that it's recorded in the prophets, uh, it's put together, at what point in history is this the case? Now, that uh, a lot of thought, a lot of ar- arguments, um, when it is, uh, generally speaking, the general consensus, and I say generally because, you know, trying to pinpoint at what date this was published. We don't have that information. And again, I think that kind of can be a little bit of our view. We turn to a book. We can open the cover and say, this is published in this date, at this place. You know, and we, we can get down to those details. So, generally speaking, many people think the first and second kings are written first, and they're written in the period of time when the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon. So, in exile in Babylon. And then what many people believe is the book of First and Second Chronicles, although they ran parallel to one another, First and Second Chronicles is written after exile when the people of God have returned back to the land and they're looking and they've rebuilt the temple during the second time. Generally speaking, that is the case. Now you can flip them around. You can move 1 Kings and 2 Kings later. You can do this. But generally speaking, that is my assumption, is that First and 2 Kings are written during the time when the people of Israel are in exile underneath the king of Babylon. Now, there's not a huge difference in those type of situations. You can apply things a little bit different, but you kind of 
see maybe this refrain might help us as we go through. When we think about when they, they summarize a king's reign, the name, you know, their age, their length of reign, were they a good king or a bad king? And they're kind of the, the markers which we have. And why is this refrain used? And specifically, why does it want to tell us if they're a good king or a bad king? Well, if you're in exile, then you're thinking about what you are, that did, what happened that you are in exile for. Um, First and Second Samuel, this contrast between Saul and David. First and Second King, you might say, is a contrast between kings, but it's not necessarily this king and this king in contrast. It's good kings and bad kings in contrast, and what happens to those good kings and bad kings, and what happens to a nation who has only bad kings in this nation of Israel. So you see all these things. You might say First and Second Samuel is that slow story of how that happens. And First and Second Kings is that fast, rapid pace of 20 kings rather than just two kings there. But here you are reading the book of Kings in exile, and you're thinking, well, why are we here? And then what happens when we go back? What are we going to live like? What are we going to do? What type of king do we want? Who are we going to worship? So I think that's a very important thing. But I also think that we see this somewhat in, in, uh, in two passages, uh, mainly in the end of 1 Kings, uh, the last verse. Haziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam the Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the, God, the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So here we see this refrain, this cycle of how it's going. But if you're reading this and you're in a foreign country, think about, you know, David. Uh, Daniel, think about uh, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, as they're asked then to bow down to foreign uh, gods and to worship them. And you then begin to read this story of what happens to those who worship Baal and turn to false gods and what happens, uh, how does the Lord treat them as well. Um, But then also at the end of 2 Kings, now this is the last chapter, but this is the beginning of the last chapter in Second Kings chapter 25. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the, the month, Nebuchadnezzar the king of Babylon came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, and famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people in the land. So here you see that it's a book of kings, and we often think of it as a book of kings of just Israel and Judah. But also it ends with the book of a king, and that's the king Nebuchadnezzar. How God uses a king Nebuchadnezzar to be able to uh, ca- ca- capture all of Israel, mainly and, and besiege Jerusalem. And you think about David's promise. He wants to build him a house. Where does he want to build him a house? In Jerusalem. What type of house is it? It's going to be a temple where God dwells. And in the end, the book of 2 Kings actually finishes where the king is taken out of Israel. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the king. 
So you see this, this start from David to uh, Jehoiakim, well, King Zedekiah, and then Jehoiachin, who uh, then sits in uh, underneath the king of Babylon. So it's not merely just about the kings of Israel. It's also about the kings of other nations, how God uses kings of other nations to be able to accomplish his means and purposes. So it doesn't end with the king of Israel, king of Judah sitting on the throne in David's throne. It actually ends with the king of Babylon. So again, you're reading this in Babylon. You're in exile. How then do you read this book differently from someone who just sat down and reads it underneath Solomon? You read it differently, right? What's going to happen? What, what do I need to learn from this? But this is exactly what God had told them would happen. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, there's the, the blessings and the curses. As they stand before, they're going into the nation of Israel. There's the blessings. They stand on the blessings. This is what's going to happen if you obey my commands. This is what's going to happen if you are fruitful because God is blessing you. What's going to happen if you disobey? And in chapter 28, he says, The Lord, Lord will cause you to be de- defeated before your enemies. Contrast to the blessing. The blessing is that your enemies will de- be defeated. But here it says, You will be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And then verse uh, 36, later on, it says, The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you have set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Here, right back in Deuteronomy, before they even stand into the promised land, God is telling them exactly what is going to happen if you disobey me. What happens at the end of 2 Kings? Well, a king comes in. They're taken out of their land, the promised land which God is. So it's not merely just David's son sitting on the throne forever that's at stake here. It's the promised land which is promised to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis. So as you sit there in exile and you're reading this book and you know what's coming, you, you sit down and start to contemplate what it could have been like, the highs that were celebrated, the lows that are coming. You ride that wave. That's how something about pinpointing the audience might be able to help us. Again, we don't know specifically at this time, but generally speaking, I, I believe that First and Second Kings is about exile. Chronicles has a different look about um, the promises made to David as they're carried through more specifically. So then why would uh, the authors write something like this? Well, again, you have this simple answer. Uh, who wrote it? Well, the Holy Spirit. Why, who did he write it to? The people of God. Well, why did he write it? Well, whatever the Holy Spirit intended to use it for. You know, there's the simple answer, but I think quite uh, simply, there, there's many things that you could uh, be able to look at. I'll, I'll choose four specifically, and uh, that is the first of choices. What choices are made and how they affect, uh, especially the legacy, the long-term legacy of what that is, the long-term effects of the choices that they make. We see this specifically in individual kings, a good king making good choices that have long-term effects. But also you see bad kings making bad choices and, and the effects of those. Remember that refrain that we saw in, uh, in the end of 1 Kings when it said that he did what was evil in the, son, in the eyes of his father Ahab, but also Jeroboam of Nebat. That the sin he, he's continuing the sin that Jeroboam did 
all the way back when, we, when the kingdom divides, he's continuing that sin. So we see that sin that he made doesn't just have an effect on him and his people. That sin has an effect on all that period of time between the start and the end during that period. So we see the choices that people are making. We see the contrast. That's the second thing that we see. We see parallel to this, we see the kings of Judah and we see the kings of Israel after the kingdom is divided. And we see these parallel. We see those choices the kings make and how they affect the long-term reign of each uh, king, the length and the status of the kingdom, the choices they make, but the contrast of those who seek to be able to even the positive kings. Now, in, in, in all of this, we have about 20 kings on, in the king of Israel, the northern king, 20 kings in the nation of uh, Judah. 20 kings in Israel, none of them are good. 20 kings in Judah, about eight of them are good. Now, we can argue about that uh, as we go through uh, to what extent and how do you label that. But you have this divide and you have this contrast of these parallel kingdoms and what's happening to them. And specifically, how they seek to be able to choose to worship God. That's an important part. That's uh, number three, the covenantal promises. Back to that blessing and cursing of the mountains and the, um, of the two mountains in Deuteronomy. The, the, the covenantal promises about what happens to the land that God has given them, the kingdom that God has promised through David uh, specifically, and then that promise of God coming in to be able to dwell with his people. The book of Exodus, uh, you know, we uh, looked at this short, shortly in our uh, fly-through um, of the book of the Bible, but the books of the Bible, but the book of Exodus seeks to be able to drive, not just to be able to bring them out of slavery, not just to be able to make them a people, but also a people that God comes and dwells in amongst. And the temple is such a big prominent thing in the start of First Kings. Again, that promise that God made to David that, um, that I will build you a house. And this, that's how Second King, Second Samuel ends. But the temple of those coming in, those promises coming to, and those positive promises of God coming to dwell with his people, um, such a high thing. But then also the promises of those curses coming in as well. What happens when you don't obey and don't worship God according to his word? And the fourth one that we see is kingdom. Now, all the others were C, but you'll have to give me this one because kingdom kind of... St- sounds like uh, a sea, uh, you know, kingdom covenant, uh, kind of have a similar sound. But, but what we see also is the kingdom. What happens to the kingdom? Specifically, what happens to a kingdom with kings? A godly king or an ungodly king? Those who are leaders, those the effect of leader, leading, not just the nation at, uh, at large of those and how they follow other gods, but also the kings, how they make choices that affect long term. So there are four things that I think that you see throughout this, and as we go through, we'll, we'll unpack some of those and see more. But, and then the fourth thing uh, we see is application. Now again, the simple thing, what's the application? Well, we should glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, there's the simple answer. Uh, but I think we need to be cautious that we don't read a book like First and Second Kings and end up praying the prayer that the Pharisee prays with a loud and proud voice saying, I thank God that I am not like these men in the book of Kings. And we should not read the book of First and Second Kings going through it thinking that I, I thank God that I am not like other men. We should thank God, but not with that proud and arrogant thing. 
we should seek to glorify him, but we should also seek to be able to see the sin and the folly of all the, the people, uh, the kings and the rulers. But we also see one major theme, and that is that, the, the, that is that no matter how good the king is, we always see a need for a godlier king. We always see a need and a void of that is to come because even a godly king will produce ungodly offspring. We see that even you know a godly king will uh, in effect sin like we saw in David. But we also see the patterns of how God works, specifically how God works um, with things like sending prophets. That God is, is patient and slow as he seeks to be able to fulfill his covenant promises. He's also patient and slow in, in seeking to be able to send prophets to be able to warn these kings and these people about what they are doing that's wrong. We also see uh, God, the pattern and principle of God plan to be able to dwell with his people. But also the problem that, that arises from that, that God, a holy God, cannot dwell with unholy people. So what happens when God's holy people turn to unholy ways and do not live according to how God has prescribed in their law of living that holy life? Well, what happens? God dwells within them, but what happens is they're then generally sent away from God's presence. But the third thing I think that we also see in this pattern and principle of how God's works is that kings, no matter good or bad, are always used for God's purposes and for his providence. A king, no matter how good or bad, is always used by God. So we leave asking, we're kind of left asking this question, who is this son of David who will rule forever? Who is this king who will sit on David's throne forever? And that's a big question that we are left asking. So I said uh, a brief introduction, and you say, well, it could have been briefer. Well, I say, well, it could have been longer. So it depends on your definition of brief. Uh, is it as short as it could be, or is it as, uh, could it be longer? So tonight, I merely want to be able to look at the first four verses And that is merely just to get us started and just to focus on this. Now, the first four verses, let me read them to you, and then we will uh, quickly look over them. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king. Let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm. And they sought for, uh, for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. And they fa- found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. And the young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. So we begin with now King David. Now, just an interesting comment. Genesis begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I, don't ha- I didn't have enough time to be able to go through every book of the Bible and to be able to pinpoint uh, this, but it's quite an interesting thing to think about that the Genesis and, and, and John are the, the only general books that begin with, here's the beginning of the story. That here, even in, in 1 Kings, you'd think that 1 Kings would 
be a standalone book. You know, Second Kings is finished. It was generally First and Second Samuel were together a book, and then First and Second Kings uh, are booked together. But um, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that. You would think that there would be some form of backstory, but it just merely begins in the middle of a story. It begins in the middle of a story about King David. It assumes you know who King David is, uh, what type of life he has lived, the information about him, that here you see uh, that the story is within a story. And, And so too, when we read the Bible, we need to understand as we look at even a particular story in a particular book, we're never just looking at the just a, a standalone story. We're always looking at a story within a story. The story of God's redemption and hand and the, the, the promises. So we go, now King David, and we think back to Second Samuel chapter um, 7. We also think about when they talk about this young lady coming in. We also probably think about Second Samuel chapter 11. And what happened with Bathsheba? And we have all these backstories of things what specifically about King David. But even as we read through the book of 1 Kings, they're assuming that you don't merely just read the book of 1 Kings by itself. There's a principle that we see throughout the whole Bible. It assumes you know the rest of the Bible. We see this quite clearly in the book of Jude as we've just looked through. He'll merely just say, don't go down the way of Cain. And you're assuming that Jude assumes that you know what that means. You know that story. And so, too, we need to be cautious as we read through these stories that we're not merely just reading through these stories. We're seeing the whole picture. We're seeing this isn't just merely about David's kingdom. It's about promises not just to David's kingdom. It's promises about God has made to his people all the way back, right back to Adam, you could say, but more specifically, maybe Abraham, that kings will come through you, that this land will be yours. It will be an inheritance for you forever. All these promises that come through. So we need to be cautious even as we begin First Kings, a standalone book that you could read by itself. And, you know, we need to be studying it understand that they assume that you're reading other parts of the Bible. And I think that's clearly in this, but even just, I think, in any of the books, they assume uh, you're reading other parts of the Bible. So um, here you have First Kings. And, and you think about David. And what this passage really tries to do is it begins to start to lay out the problem that we're going to face in the first couple of chapters, is that David is now an older man. David, the one who decapitated a giant, who stood up against Goliath, who, who killed his tens of thousands, as Saul has killed his thousands, as who, who has fought in many battles, ran from Saul years on the run, ruled a kingdom, reigned, went into fight battles after battle, he, he's too old, he can't even warm himself. That's one of the major problems here in this passage. David is, is no longer that mighty man that we had been reading about in the past. Nothing would work, he couldn't do it himself. And, and he's dependent on someone else to come and warm him. And, and I think the purpose of this is to show that he, he the strong king, who is meant to be the strong king, needs another to come help. And they need to go find this young lady to be able to help them. Now, just a cultural thing at this point. If you are a, an army and you hear about what is happening to King David, kings not merely are just uh, people on stamps. Um, they're not just people on 
coins. Uh, during this time, a king was your, your symbol of your might. And uh, it's very important that you had a strong king. What did the Israelites say when they said to Samuel that we want a king like other nations to go fight our battles? We saw this in Second Samuel that, that there came a point where David couldn't do that. But we see he, he's declining. But before we think about that for a moment, I really want to think about the realities of what we find in this passage. That David is a believer. There's no doubt about it. But David, although he's a believer, still has to face that his body is not going to last forever. That the effects of sin are still apparent on his body. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul, Paul puts it quite simply, the outer self is wasting away. Now, I think that's one truth that we all might be able to agree on. The mirror teaches this reality, uh, even standing up from a chair. As I begin to get older, I realize that uh, your body starts making noises or makes your, your body makes noises even if you do the simplest things. I see our kids jump around and they're free and uh, there are no regrets to uh, what they do with their body. But uh, even just, just today, getting uh, my, my computer bag on my shoulder, I, I stood up and I went, I, I just didn't do it right. I didn't swing it the right way or something. I could feel my body ache. And Paul says, your outer self is wasting away. And David, under, David did this. Later on, he says that uh, in, in our bodies we groan. And we know this to be the case. And God, David here is a godly man, but yet his body is wasting away, that his body does see corruption. And, uh, but this is a part of the promise which God had already told him in Second Samuel chapter 7. I will give you rest from all your enemies. We saw this in Second Samuel. Moreover, the Lord declares that you, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. And here David is in his last latter parts of his life. He is unable to even keep himself warm. You might say that his days are fulfilled. That David has served God. He has run the race that God has set before him. But in that promise, God did not say who was going to be king. Now we learn learn later in this uh, chapter that there is a promise made. But David had many sons and daughters. We see this uh, clearly in Chronicles. Uh, there were some that were born in Hebron and then later that were born in uh, Jerusalem. Um, and, uh, but God had, been, God had told David that, that we know this for certain, that you are going to die when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you that shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. So we know that David is going to die, that there is going to be someone who follows him who will, um, who will be established as the king. Now we've seen Amon, uh, we've seen Abnon, we've seen Absalom. Adonijah is the next in line. 
Now we learn later that there is some form of agreement. This is something we'll take up later. But here, First Kings then asks the question, what happens to David now? What happens to David's kingdom? Does David's kingdom crumble with David? Who will be the king after David's reign? Not only who would be king, what type of king will he be? Now, the story of a throne is always a tricky one. Um, we'll, we'll look at this probably or use this as an illustration later, but just what's going to happen? It doesn't matter what type of kingdom you have, especially in times like this. It's amazing. We saw it uh, clearly with uh, Absalom. He was willing to take his father down just so he would be king. And so there's many things at risk um, that we see. But here, uh, David's kingdom has been established in 2 Samuel. Uh, but what will happen to it? We'll see in this, uh, the book of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, this roller coaster events of ups and downs. We'll see wise kings who sit on his throne. We'll see fools who sit on his throne. That the throne remains the same, but the person who sits on it does not. But in all of this, we see that there is one who sits above all. God who uses these kings. It is not David's kingdom per se. It is God's promise to David. And it is God's kingdom that he is the one who is going to establish. He is the one who is going to sit on the throne. This is God's story. As we look at this story, we need to understand we're not merely just reading the book of 1 Kings. We are reading the story which God laid out As the book of Genesis spells out, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is God's world. This is God's nation in Israel. It's His people. It's His glory that is at stake. And as we continue to read through this story, we must be reminded where we have come from and where we are heading. Not merely just to the book of 2 Kings, but seeing Christ in the shadows. Seeing the lack of the perfect Christ seeing the hope of God bringing, that he brings through his promise. And as we get closer to Christ, we always see the need for Christ. That no matter who is the king, there is always a lack. There is always something more, something missing. That we're leading through the book of Kings to finally find the king of kings. Now next week we'll see again a familiar story but yet with different names. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His Glory and His Gospel.